We are uh, transitioning through the trials of Christ. Uh, first, they're brought before Annas, the high priest that the Jews recognized, then taken to the house of Caiaphas for an illegal, illegal night trial. Caiaphas was appointed um, and was there, I think, from 18 AD to 36 AD. And then the Gospels tell us from the house of Caiaphas, he goes to a mourning trial where the Sanhedrin is gathered together. And in some ways, that's the most important one. That's the one, no doubt, Jesus wanted to be as clear as he could at that particular trial. Then they moved to Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate. So there are six of those brought before us. In our study here in John 18, when we get to verse 28, it just says they led, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas. Then he takes us right to Pilate unto the hall of judgment. And it was early. He does tell us that. In Matthew, you could just stay in Luke 22. I'll just read these. In Matthew, it tells us in verse in chapter 27, when the morning was come, all the chief priests and all the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, then they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate. Mark tells it to us in this way. He says, and straightway, immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders, the scribes, and he says, and the whole Sanhedrin. And they bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. <clears throat> Luke is the one who gives us the most information on this morning. And Luke, if you look there in verse 66, chapter 22, it begins and says, as soon as it was day, we've had two of them tell us it was early. One tells it was early. Two of them tell us it was morning. Luke says, as soon as it was day, the crack of dawn, the elders and the people, the chief priests and the scribes came together and they led him, notice this, into their Sanhedrin. Council there, Sanhedrin. They led him into their Sanhedrin, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. And hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need have we any further of witness? For we ourselves have heard out of his own mouth. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. So Matthew and Mark tell us it was morning. John tells us it was early. But Luke is the only one who gives us the details of what happened in that morning meeting with the Sanhedrin. None of the apostles were there. 
Um, Peter had denied the Lord. He's gone. John is not there. Luke was not there. So Luke, in the beginning of his gospel, tells us that he diligently talked to eyewitnesses and went through and then was guided from above and so forth to put together his record. So Luke either heard from Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, so I assume we're at this Sanhedrin meeting, or probably more likely from Paul the Apostle, who he traveled with for years. No doubt this young Saul of Tarsus was also at the Sanhedrin meeting. And Luke then gives us the details as we move into this. It is the Sanhedrin that condemns Jesus to death. Not Annas, not Caiaphas alone. He said he's worthy of it. It's at the Sanhedrin where the verdict is passed. Not Pilate, not Herod, but the Sanhedrin. The Jews' own religious council, the most powerful branch of, of the Israeli government. They had no king at this time, so Sanhedrin was legislative. They were judicial, you know, uh, they were the presidency, as it were, uh, the executive. And it's there that Jesus gives the clearest testimony. It's glad, it's there that he wants to say exactly what he wants them and us to hear. And I imagine his heart is broken as he's doing it because it is there then that he is condemned and the verdict of death is passed. Now, again, only Luke gives us this. Take note of several things. The place is different. So we know there's this hearing in the morning. Previously in the house of Caiaphas, Luke tells us over in verse 54, now he says he was led into their Sanhedrin. So he's now in a different place at the council hall of the Sanhedrin. It's a different time. When Jesus was brought to Caiaphas, it was night. The soldiers and the officers had to have torches and lamps to take him in Gethsemane because it was dark. They brought him to the house of Caiaphas. It was an illegal night trial. And at the end of the evening, after Peter denied him the third time, the rooster crowed, you know, hearkening that the morning was coming. So it was a different time. Now we're told by the gospel writers it was morning. It was early. The day had broke. It was a different procedure. Here, there's no spitting, there's no beating, there's no mocking. Here, they say, we don't need witnesses. Here, it is just a trial where they hear directly from him and decide that is all that they need to hear. It tells us here that he immediately goes to Pontius Pilate, which is not what the Gospels say. Prior to this, it says that they held counsel. And here the people are different. In this meeting, again, it is only the Sanhedrin. There are no servants. There are no young maids like the one that hassled Peter. Uh, there are no officers. There are no apostles. The crowd we heard described at the house of Caiaphas, none of that is here. This is strictly the Sanhedrin. Mark tells us the whole Sanhedrin had gathered. 
And the Sanhedrin had to be gathered if there was going to be a death penalty. It was mandatory for them always to be consulted in capital offenses. But normally they didn't meet till after nine o'clock in the morning, till after the morning sacrifice. But on this day, Jesus himself would be the morning and the evening sacrifice. The morning and evening sacrifices were at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon. It was at nine in the morning when Jesus was nailed to the cross. And it was at three in the afternoon when he died and gave up the spirit. So they gather early before that because the crowds are there from all over Israel and parts of the world. It's a mandatory feast. And so many of those were there to hear Jesus. They, they, they love what they saw and heard. So they want to sentence him to death before the, everybody wakes up on the Passover. It's, it's an interesting picture because on this particular day, they had eaten the Passover meal the night before. At sundown, the Passover began, they ate the meal. On this day, they're celebrating and remembering the day that the children of Israel were led out of Egypt and delivered. And that was by the blood of the lamb that had been shed the night before and put on their doorposts and so forth. This is the very day that Christ is in their midst now. The Sanhedrin has the very deliverer in front of them, but Jesus himself will not be delivered. He will be delivered to be crucified, and it will be through the blood of that lamb that the mockers and the mistreaters that are there before him will have opportunity for the greater deliverance through the blood of Christ. Such an interesting picture. We don't know what satisfaction, you know, there's just darkness here. The enemy is prowling that here they have their nemesis before them bound with rope or chains. He's beaten beyond human recognition. He's covered with spit. He's been mocked. And they're, and they're looking at him saying, are you the Christ? You know, and, and what sick satisfaction they must have had at looking at this disheveled, beaten frame that's in front of them. And it says they all ask him. They sat in concentric circles. So they're around him and they're all yelling, are you the Christ? Tell us, are you the Christ? In fact, in the end of verse 66, it says the council was saying, that's a present tense, they continued saying, art thou the Christ? Tell us, are you the Christ? Imagine all of these, over 70 of them at least, yelling at him. Are you the Christ? Yeah, are you the Christ? There he is, beaten to a pulp, you know, covered in spit. Are you the Christ? Now, it's the anointed one. They would be saying, are you Messiah? Same word. Uh, the Greek is Christ, Hebrew, Messiah. And the Messiah was the center of Israeli hope. It was the center of their future. He was to be the center of the nation. But for these Sanhedrists, they had an impression of a Messiah that would be political. They had the idea of a Messiah that was to have an earthly reign as a monarch. They had the picture of a Messiah that was strictly nationalistic. 
they had a picture of a Messiah who was going to reestablish the nation of Israel, set them free from all pagan bondage, and particularly from the, the yoke of the Roman government. And here is this one beaten in front of them. They're saying, is that who you are? You're the Messiah? You're the Christ? Are you the one? Are you kidding? This is who you are? Now, we had heard from the angels earlier in Luke's gospel, that rejoice greatly to you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord, a Savior, Messiah, Jehovah, born to you this day. We're told again in Luke chapter 2, when he is brought by Joseph and Mary up to the temple, it says there, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's, Jehovah's, Christ. And he sees him as a 40-day-old baby. He sees the Christ. They can't see what's right in front of them here. Um, Jesus would say to his disciples, um, as he's traveling up near Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? They say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? And of course, it's Peter that says, thou art the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. So it wasn't unknown that he had claimed to be Christ. They knew that. And, but they wanted him to own that because, look, <clears throat> to them and the Romans, Messiah was a deliverer. The Romans could have cared less if Jesus was said, I'm God, I'm God's son. They'd have gone, right. But when Jesus, if he admits to being Messiah to the Romans on the Passover, when the crowds were tenuous, anyhow, you know, there was tension. And here's one saying he's the Messiah who had come in on Palm Sunday with the multitudes crying, blessed is he who comes, the king of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, this one now that the crowds had gathered around on the Passover, is he speaking about delivering Israel? It all smelled like rebellion to them. So these religious leaders wanted him to admit he was Messiah. It would be their bait when they drag him before Pilate. And Jesus knew well. He knew that there was no proper answer he could give to them. He said, if I tell you, verse 67, you will not believe and if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. And it's very interesting there in both of those statements. He says, if I tell you, you, the phrase will not is the double negative, the oime. And then he says, and also if I ask you, will not, again, the double negative. And it goes like this. You know, if, if I also, he, he says, if I tell you, you will in no way. You ain't going to do it. It's never going to happen. You're not going to believe. It's a double negative there. 
And he says, and if I talk to you, you will not. It ain't going to happen. You're never going to see the day that you answer me if I ask you a question. And what he's saying as he's standing there in front of they ask him, are you Messiah? And he said, no answer I can give you because if I tell you, you won't believe me. If I question you, if I have dialogue with you and I show you the scripture and its description of Messiah, there's no way you're going you're gonna to answer my questions. Because they had already come and accused him of casting out demons and healing the sick and doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. When Jesus asked them questions prior to this, it says they remained silent and answered nothing. And he knows because he had told his disciples that when... He, he heard Peter say that he was the Christ, the Son of God. It says, then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus, the Christ. For from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Jesus knew that he must. So he's in the midst of this group of the Sanhedrin. They're going to pass the death sentence upon him. He's already been beaten and spit upon and mocked. And he knows because he's decided to take the father's cup from his hand and drink it, that there's no answer he can give that's going to change anything. He says this is to his disciples. He, a number of times he had said, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. This is what the leaders are going to do to me. Uh, this is what must happen. But the thing is, he's not going to let this group of religious leaders get away with their idea of what Messiah is. He doesn't say directly, I am Messiah. But now he directly identifies himself as the son of man. If you look down here, he says, hereafter, verse 69. Remember last week, it was nevertheless hereafter. Now it's a different crowd here. Hereafter shall, future tense, the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. From here forward, the Son of Man. Now look, they know he's referencing Daniel chapter 7. Jesus, through the Gospels, rarely you hear him call himself Christ, but over 84 times he calls himself the Son of Man. It's his favorite title. And this is the last time it's used before the Sanhedrin here. He says, you have to understand, I'm a greater Messiah than anything that you could ever understand. He's not going to leave this court of Christian leaders without testimony because of those there that are mocking, of those sitting around him with, with evil in their eyes, and maybe most of all Saul of Tarsus, he looks at them with a broken heart. He is their Messiah. 
But he's a way different desire than the one they're anticipating because he's come to take up an eternal throne. He will be the anointed one not to give them political deliverance, but to give them eternal deliverance from sin, and he will sit at the right hand of God. He's a much bigger Messiah than they could ever conceive. And he's not letting these religious leaders that sit around, many of them hating him, go without an answer because he loves them. He loves them. And they're spiting themselves with their treatment of him at this point in time. And he gives them a prophecy about his exaltation that will begin at the resurrection and be completed at his second coming. He says, you'll see the Son of Man at the right hand of the power of God. He had challenged them before. You know, and it took place at his ascension. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. Psalm 110.1. That happened when Jesus ascended. You know, it it tells us in Acts chapter 2, Peter now there filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching to the crowds, including many of these religious leaders. He says there, this Jesus... Hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into heaven, but he saith of himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. They're going to hear it again. It's interesting about being at the right hand of the Father when Stephen begins to give them his testimony. And it says Stephen, as he draws it to a close and talks to them about the hardness of of their heart, his face is glowing like an angel. And it says they're all overwhelmed. And all of a sudden he looks up and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And it says they they all hold their ears and go, ah! And they all run in and they kill him. They stone him. They can't stand it because Jesus said that would happen. You know, on, on Mount of Olives, he said, you'll see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power with power and great glory. Here he says it to them. They've heard it. Peter preached it and they heard it again there, these religious leaders. Then when they're getting ready to kill Stephen, Stephen's lit up and they hear again that Jesus is at the right hand. They can't take it anymore. They can't take it. They lose their marbles and they run in to kill this guy, which really they weren't allowed to do. So this Jesus now all will be consummated in this one. The Messiah who is before them at this moment, who is the last person they would think is Messiah because of the condition he's in, is in fact a far greater Messiah than they could ever imagine. They saw him do some miracles in his earthly frame, very limited, compared to the power and glory he will exist in for eternity, not even to be compared. And yet there he is in front of them, 
beaten, humiliated. Remarkable. They can't stand the fact that he said this. And then they said in verse 70, look, then said they all, now they're all screaming again, Art thou the Son of God? Because they know that in Daniel, when it talked about the Son of Man, who he claimed to be, it said in chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. That's where he gets it from. And he came with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So they know this one that Daniel describes is a personage that deity is involved with. And so it is, they give that away when they scream, tell us, art thou then the definite article, the son of God? And the interesting thing there is when they're all yelling at him, again, the circles seated around him, they say, art thou, that's emphatic. Are you sitting here before us, beat up, bleeding, spit upon? You, are you telling us you're the one, you're You know, you're the one. You're the son of God. Imagine. And he says, it is as you've said. He affirms what you're saying is true. You are the son of God. They they look at him. He's taking them from Messiah to son of man. Now to son of God. Disheveled. You know, just think of the irony here of what is in front of them. People today say, I won't believe it unless I see it. Well, they saw it and didn't believe it. Here he was in front of them, maligned, beaten. And they say, you say you're the son of God and they can't see it. They can't see it. And we know that he was, Luke tells us in the beginning of his gospel, that Gabriel came to Mary and said, It says, the angel of the Lord said to her, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. They couldn't call him the son of God, but Mary hears this angel tell her that, and she's willing to believe, well, well, this is the son of God. She's willing to hear that. Um, At his temptation in the wilderness, no, in fact, first at the baptism, when he comes up out of the water, the spirit descends like a dove and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. God says it himself. This is the son of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's driven after that into the wilderness where he's tempted of the devil and the devil knows who he is. He comes to him and says to him, since you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. 
He says it clearly. Since you're the son of God, cast yourself down, because it's written, he'll give his angels charge over thee, lest you dash your foot against the stone. They will bear thee up. He says it twice there in the temptation. Since you're the son of God, he has no doubt about it at all. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter starts talking and they're overshadowed with the Shekinah cloud, they hear a voice of Almighty God say, this is my beloved son, hear him. So through the Gospels over and over, it is seen that he in fact is the son of God. He didn't promote that as he he walked through the, the world. He, he didn't promote he was Messiah. He always called himself the son of man. But he did tell them, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So here he identifies himself clearly as the son of God, something that you and I should be able to, to hear. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, when he talks to those that were doubting, he said to them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? And I think how often I'm slow in heart to believe something that he's saying to me. Art thou then the son of God? You know, he's just taken them from Messiah to son of man, now to son of God. And he said, you said it. That's an affirmation. It is as you say. And they, plural again, said, we, do, we don't need, we need no witness, no further witness for we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. And to them it was blasphemous for him to be saying that he was deity. He was the son of God. They had, heard, he had said before Abraham was, I am. They had heard enough from him. But now the verdict is to pass. The votes now will be counted by one of the scribes and it will be recorded. It, again, it couldn't be unanimous. There had to be at least a few dissenters because if it was a unanimous decision to put him to death, the Jewish tradition said there was no mercy in that vote and he would be spared, he would be sent away. So there at least had to be several, and we assume Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, there were several, in fact, it tells us, who did not agree with the council and their decision. And because of their not agreeing, the Sanhedrin was able to pass the guilty verdict. The vote was in. The scribes counted the vote, and he was found guilty. Imagine this one before them. Now he'll be taken to the civil government. It's interesting as I look at that, I think, you know, in our generation today, outside of our church and the world, that surrounds us. We're in the same trial. This world is in the same trial. And this world has to pass a verdict as well. He's a liar. Look at him, beaten, spit on. This is 
the Messiah, this is the Son of Man, this is the Son of God. And we try to tell the world that Jesus loves them. We try to tell the world what happened in our lives. But the world has to make the decision. They have to cast the vote. And you and I need to remember that because what we see here, and again, Jesus wanted this most pointed identification of who he was to take place in the center of the religious world. Because if it was going to be rejected there, it was going to be rejected further out. It was going to be rejected, you know, through Rome. It was going to be rejected around the world. It has been rejected for 2,000 years, and here we are in our culture today. And men still have to cast their vote. You and I are called to be witnesses. He says here, we have no, no further need of witnesses. The same word in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, remain in Jerusalem till you're endued with power, that you might be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. To the, here we are, the uttermost ends of the earth. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. They said, we don't need any more witnesses to put them to death. We need witnesses filled with the Holy Spirit today to talk to this world about the fact that he's risen and he loved them and he died for them. But the interesting thing that we see here is Jesus can stand right in front of someone and tell them that he's the Savior and they can say, I don't believe. Some of you, your friends, your relatives, your parents, your prodigals, those that you love, you're sharing Christ with them, relatives that are old at the end of their lives, you're thinking, man, I hope they get saved before the, you know, it's, and, and you, you feel so terrible so much at the time. It's not on you. It is our responsibility to share the love of Christ. We're all called to that. You and I are those who are supposed to bring Christ to men, but only God brings men to Christ. It tells us in Acts chapter, chapter 2, verse 47, that the Lord's the one who adds to the church daily those that should be saved. It's his work. He does it. And the, the interesting thing here is he can stand right in front of someone, as he does today in many ways. And they can turn away. You are his witnesses. Jesus said, I have been with you, John 14, but I shall be in you. And you're the ones now filled with the spirit of Christ that shares with a broken and dark world. Paul was determined to destroy all of this. And when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he said to him, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? He was persecuting the church, which was the body of Christ, which is you and I. And we have the privilege to share with a lost world what's happened in our own lives. And the truth about his forgiveness and his love. You can get persecuted for that. Why persecutest thou me? Jesus was spit on and beaten. You know, we have to understand that we're of another world. We're in another kingdom. That the Messiah is much greater than a political Messiah. The church should realize that. He's going to come with the power of heaven. He's the Son of God. 
And when we, we share with other people, it tells us this. It says, you know, to them that are perishing, you have the savor of death unto death. People that are lost, they said, you smell bad. You come to them, hey, praise the Lord, Jesus saved me. You know, he loves you. And, and when you're saying all that, you're saying, I'm saved and you ain't. And that really smells bad to them. You stink, man. It says to those that are saved, you have the savor of life unto life. And when you share the love of Christ, you have fellowship with other believers. It builds up. It edifies. They just smell. You just reek of that life. And maybe there's some here today that are right on the edge. You're right on the edge. You're hearing the word of God. And you're hearing that Jesus Christ can stand right in front of someone. Because people say, well, I could see him. But here he was. They saw him. And he didn't come into them in power and glory. He came humbly and broken and beaten. And he stood in front of them and said, this has happened because I love you. I've endured this for you. And some of you here today in your hearts are seeing that Christ. And he's speaking those things to you. And you have to cast your vote today. You either say he's a liar or you say that he's Lord. There's no middle ground. Puritan said liar, lunatic, or Lord. The only decision that you can make. For you and I as believers, look, the interesting thing is as we look at this, is that the ground of his atonement, the very foundation of it, is the death of God's eternal son. That's why we have eternal salvation. You didn't contribute to it. You weren't there. You receive it as a gift. And so, so look, for us, for the world that are lost, they're still casting their vote. And you and I know, oh, come on, man, I can't make it. What's wrong with them? I keep telling them about the gospel. It's just, you know, because you're, you're trusting that there will be conviction. And if the Lord brings that, they, they'll come into the kingdom. But it's a double-edged sword. If you think the conviction, the conviction of Christ through his word and through his spirit can accomplish things, what do you do with conviction in your own lives? What do you do when this same Christ, beaten and mutilated for you, stands in front of you and says, you know, you need to get rid of that. You know, that attitude, you know, those thoughts, you know, what you're abusing here. This shouldn't be going on in your life. We're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not getting into heaven because we're perfect. We're getting into heaven because this one here spit on beaten, disheveled, was the perfect Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And there was never, ever a greater demonstration of love than for him to divest himself of his eternal glory and come and walk in this skin and take this kind of abuse so that you and I can be saved. This is probably the most important trial out of the six that took place because this is the place where the rejection becomes official 
This is the place where the sentence is passed, where the verdict comes in, and sadly, it is with the most revealed religious group in the world who preserved the scripture and studied the scripture and kept the feasts and looked forward to the Messiah, so they said. And they turn away. They turn away. And look, you all know it's not religion, it's relationship. Calvary Chapel didn't hang on a cross for anybody. Neither did I. This is about Jesus Christ, not about religion. It's not about denominations. So we're going to have the musicians come. We'll sing a last song together. You know, I I would challenge you. Let's stand on two fronts. If you're a believer, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If there's conviction in our lives, brothers and sisters, about something, what a wonderful thing that he would come and through his blood and his atonement, he's able then to fellowship with us personally about our imperfections, about our future, about his love. This is about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray if he has you under conviction, you're listening, you're yielding. If you're here and you don't know Christ today, You'll never, like this group of religious leaders, will never in eternity be able to say they hadn't heard. And look, you're here this morning. He loves you. He died for you. He took this beating for you. He let them spit upon him for you. He was nailed to a cross for you. He bore your sins. He died so you can live. Not religion. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And because of who he was, he purchased an eternal price, salvation. And it's yours freely if you want it today. But you can never walk out of this room and face God one day in eternity and say, I never heard. Because he told us, no man comes to the Father, unless the Spirit is drawing them. Right now, the Holy Spirit is drawing people in this room. You got to cast your vote. This is either true or it's not true. Forget about politics. Forget about all the rest of it. He's either a liar or he's the Lord. He's either offering you something that this world will never be able to offer you or he's deceiving you. You have to decide that right now because he speaks to the human heart. And it's a language that none of us can say, I didn't hear. And if you're here today and you walk out of here at this trial and you cast your vote against Jesus and you turn your back on him for good, You will never be able to say as you stand before him and he's your judge that you never heard. He loves you so much. He brought you here with all of us. Look at this crew. You know, he couldn't get you to a normal church, so he got you here (laughs) because he loves you. 
and he wants you to hear the truth. The truth is he died for you, and the Bible says today is the acceptable day of salvation. And as we sing this last song, we're going to ask if you want to be saved, and you know you need to be saved, you hear him speaking to you, we're going to ask you to get out of your seat, come down and stand here. We want to pray with you. We want to give you a Bible, some literature to read. If a friend brought you today, they're going to say, come on, come come on, I'll go down with you. And we'll wait as we worship. Let's pray for those here that might be saved. And you come. Jesus said, if you're willing to acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father and all of the angels in heaven. He's willing to say, that one's mine. Yeah, that one. Yeah, with that rap sheet. Yeah, that one's mine. Cleanse, forgiven. They're mine today. You got me? You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Don't listen to anything I say. Only listen to what is in your heart now. It's between you and him. It's between you and him. Lord, we, we pray, we settle our hearts, and you are the one who adds to the church daily such as should be saved, Lord. And Lord, I know how many in this room that may be lost that you love so deeply that you allowed yourself to be treated this way in unimaginable humility and in brokenness. Lord, touch the hearts of those here today that have never come and draw them, Lord, into your loving arms today, Lord. And for all of us, Lord, that are your sons and daughters, where there's conviction in our lives, Lord, please give us the strength to live it out, Lord. So often, Lord, we're saying, I know that's right, or I know this, and we find ourselves falling back into the same thing. Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit. Give us the strength to live out the convictions as we believe you stand in front of us as well. And we put all of these things before you, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.